Kia ora, my name is Erica, and I am here today with Sanjana Hatatua. He's a PhD researcher at the National Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Otago University. Thank you for being with us today. Very glad to be here. Thank you. All right. I'd love to get started by asking you to fully introduce yourself um, by telling us who you are, where you come from, and what is the work that you do. I'm Sri Lankan. I came here for my doctoral research in 2018, early 2018, and I've been here since looking at uh, the field of social media as it uh, relates to the way that Sri Lanka has dealt with violence um, from 2018 onwards. So my interest is in the manner uh, and the role that these social media platforms play in either promoting violence, in the seed and spread of incendiary content, or on the other hand, how at times they have gone on to protect and strengthen and promote democracy. Fascinating, thank you. Now, we were really excited to be able to invite you here to speak with us today. Um, but can you tell us why you felt a sense of dread when you first heard from us, when we first contacted you? Well, in Sri Lanka, censorship is something that we've grown up with and grown up to fear. Uh, and it has various ways in which it comes about. And some of it is sometimes quite violent. And when I had in my inbox um, a line that said an email had arrived from New Zealand's chief censor, um, my immediate emotional reaction was one of anxiety and fear uh, because of the word association with and the lived experience of mm -hmm. censorship. Uh, and then when I went on to um, take a moment to realize that I was in New Zealand uh, and open up the email and then subsequently go through the contents of the email, which was from uh, David Shanks, um, and then went up to actually read about the Office of the uh, Chief Censor. I had known about it from my work on Christchurch after March 2019 um, and what the office had done, but I hadn't known about the fact that there was a chief censor behind all of this. So it was a, it was a you know, looking back, it was a funny moment where this, this term, chief censor, uh, raised all my hackers and, you know, caused anxiety when, you know, it really shouldn't have. <laughs> um, going on from that, can you talk through a little bit in terms of what is different about your experience of what censorship or classification looks like in New Zealand and then in Sri Lanka? Well, I mean, it's uh, night and day. Um, in as much as I know it is in New Zealand, um, the way that the office is structured with the independence from government um, is fundamentally important. Um, to not act on the instructions or the political convenience or the political presentism of uh, whatever government uh, holds power um, at a particular point of time. So that independence, as institutional independence is fundamentally important. Um, in Sri Lanka, again, in a nutshell, compressing decades of very complicated, um, violent history, censorship has been used more as a tool to contain, control, um, and erase inconvenient truths to successive governments, truths that have been around human rights abuse, around democratic dissent, around disappearances, abductions, murders, uh, things that have been, for the government of the day, inconvenient to place for public discussion as a public record have been the ones, has been the content that has been censored. 
uh, as I said, it operates in different levels. It ranges from the prevention of the content appearing on terrestrial media, television and radio, as well as printed media. And increasingly, in the past decade, it has encroached into the manner in which uh, content on digital media and social media is also uh, contained and controlled, but that's in a slightly different way. Ultimately, though, unlike New Zealand, and very simply, it's to prevent public reflection on important matters that should concern the citizenry. Whereas in New Zealand, both with the referenda and plebiscite and the policy processes and the discussions that you have and the classification that you give to content, treating the public as adults, treating the public in a very different way and trusting the public to have that conversation, uh, as I said, it's night and day. Mm. Bank. Mm. So social media, obviously, um, I think we're all aware, has a huge amount of power in our lives these mm. days. Um, what do you see as a way that the platforms themselves may be able to regulate the amount of yeah. uh, misinformation, disinformation on there? Do you have any thoughts around that? Do you have all day? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's wishful thinking. Let me be very clear in what I say and be intentional in the words that I use. I don't think social media companies can self-regulate. I think that we need the kind of outside regulation in order to very clearly address what they are not willing to and also cannot address. Now, where this gets a bit complicated is that that kind of regulation in my country raises heckles and raises all sorts of warnings because uh, the kind of governments that we have and enjoy in Sri Lanka would use uh, regulation as a means through which they will promote censorious policy. And so the regulation then becomes a guise for broader, wider, deeper, more pervasive censorship. Where countries like New Zealand can lead the way in the Commonwealth and beyond is a more informed, enlightened public policy decision-making process, as well as the regulations and laws that come as a consequence of that engagement with the public. So countries like Sri Lanka look upon countries like New Zealand to kind of guide us in the way that these uh, policies can be made and social media companies can be held accountable. And that is also what I want to leave the listeners with, because a lot of us would uh, be slaves to the convenience of social media today to tell our friends and family and colleagues and the world writ large around what we feel and how we feel and what we are doing and where we are at and what we are drinking and how much we like our flat white and uh, you know how much we like the place that we went to and so on and so forth. But we are also the architects of a more dystopian future as a consequence of producing so much that once it's out there, it's out there. And the social media companies are the beneficiaries of this because, I mean, it's been commonly said that if you're not being sold to, you are the product. And they are using what we put out to strengthen their profit margin without any regard for the likes of you and I. Um, within our society, do you think there is um, a way for individuals to use social media platforms in a responsible or healthy way? Individuals are the uh, arbiters of what they see. Um, uh, but as you know, uh, all these devices have a power button and very few of us use it. All social media platforms and the apps that uh, we use have ways in which we can reduce the notifications or we can mute them entirely. Either we don't use it or we don't even know about it. 
And that's the problem because in theory, what is possible isn't in practice, but is sometimes even desirable. Because sometimes we have a strange relationship where we constantly want to be updated on the most mundane of things and we have withdrawal symptoms if we don't check our phones every few seconds every minute and it's, you know it's a it's a human condition now and there are there's research that goes into the kind of brain signatures and patterns that have come about as a consequence of these social media platforms and apps constantly drip you know it's like a drip drip of um, hits to uh, you know the brain around the notifications that they give out so in practice no uh, so that's where uh, people like myself say that the companies have a greater responsibility as the architects of what they do and how they do it. It matters a great deal that they change the way that the apps are designed. It matters a great deal that they realize that the way that they are designed at the moment is for profit and for engagement, which are not necessarily the best things for society and democracy. It's complex. Um... Now, I know that you've worked for over a decade on electoral integrity. Mm. Do you have any recommendations or lessons from your own experience that might be relevant within a New Zealand context as we come into our election? Yes, you have wonderful bed sheets, and I recommend crawling <laughs> under them and blocking out the light uh, and then never, never, never waking up. Uh, because that is certainly one way that uh, I sometimes deal with it by, you know, you know, the comfort I get from just crawling into bed because the world is too much to take in, given what I see and study at scale, uh, not just in Sri Lanka, which is to say that it's really quite disturbing. Um, you know, 10 years ago, when I started social media um, and started the first Twitter accounts and uh, Facebook accounts in South Asia, um, it was a very different story. The, the reason I did it and the reason why many of us were on social media at the time was it gave us a voice that couldn't be taken away. It gave us the agency to hold those in power accountable. Uh, and it gave us the platforms through which the inconvenient questions could be posed, couldn't be erased, even if they weren't answered all the time. They were there. Now, though, the problem with social media is that any which way you cut it, and in any country, in any part of the world, they are platforms of the unraveling of electoral integrity and of our democratic fabric and the institutions that we hold sacred. Of course, it's different. It's a very different story in Sri Lanka, which has decades of social, communal and political unrest and division that social media weaponizes, that, you know, uh, tears asunder. It's very different in New Zealand, which is one of the wonderful things about your country, where the, 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 the stories that bind people together that you hold valuable, that the institutions and the media and the political culture that you hold sacrosanct is strong enough right now to resist the toxicity of these platforms. Um, my fear is that that is going to wear away over time uh, and that the anxieties that the country might have around an election or a referendum or a particular moment in time, say, after a particularly violent event or even just over a period of time when anxieties over jobs or climate change or personal or family security grow, that is then drip by drip, year after year. You know, you're looking at a timeline that's decades into the future, um, going to be exacerbated by social media content that, you know, amplifies the most toxic and then suppresses what binds us together. So New Zealand is not insured or immune 
from what Sri Lanka has gone through and is going through. In terms of a solution or any hope <laughs> in this area, I know we've talked previously about um, the need for greater sort of governmental yeah. political regulation. Um, yeah. Can you uh, expand a little bit on that for us, please? Well, progressive regulation that takes into account the nature of social media. And I know that for our listeners, this might sound counterintuitive, but social media is not the same even in one country across time. For example, what happened on Twitter after Christchurch, the massacre, was very different to what happened on other social media platforms. And Twitter then is not what Twitter is today. Uh, and what is trending on Twitter today may not be what's trending on Twitter tomorrow. So from platform to platform, and within a platform, from time to time, things change. And the issue there is that people like myself have a kind of a handle on it, Policymakers and governments don't. And the ignorance of policymakers and governments, I don't, and I don't mean this in a bad way, I just mean that the conversation is skewed to the social media companies which know far more than governments and policymakers around what exactly is going on, but it's in their interest not to let on. And so there's an asymmetry in the conversations that we have around progressive public policymaking that can really bring about things that make this a bit better. I'm not talking about um, you know, things that are going to overnight change this uh, toxicity. You can't, I mean, it's decades in the making. But I think one of the things that has really changed as a consequence of uh, both sides of the Atlantic dealing with the consequences of social media going awry with Brexit and of course with uh, elections uh, across uh, on the other side is that, listen, there's something wrong here, right? We have been from small countries like Sri Lanka telling that same story, but nobody listened to us. That's fine. It's only when you know Western democracies and the West and the global North faces the same problems that people tend to stand up and listen. And that's a good thing because we benefit as a consequence as well. And I think countries like New Zealand have a really great responsibility within and outside of the Commonwealth as well to get this right. Um, because other countries would look at you. And so this is, of course, a domestic issue in the main, but it's also an international thing because it matters. Just like climate change, it's a shared responsibility. I cut a tree in Sri Lanka, it matters to the coastal areas in New Zealand. We are all in this together, and social media is something that binds us together in a family. It's a disunited, violent, toxic family, but we're still a family. And, you know, these companies need to get it right, and that's why governments also need to engage in a manner that gets them and compels them um, to get it right. Optimism and hope founded on data and evidence is where the public policy making needs to go to and be constructed upon. Do you see, obviously there are um, regulatory powers that governments are able to put in in terms of legislation. Do you also see economic drivers being able mm. to decentralize some of the power that social media platforms have? Because economic drive, it drives everything. Is there a way also that this can be used to shift some of the power balance? Well, I mean, you see that with Facebook and the advertiser boycott, right? I mean, some mm. of the advertisers are going back, but we've never had that before. And that's coming out of the consequence of the Black Lives Matter movement and the inability or the unwillingness or a combination of both by this one company to do anything about it to the satisfaction of those who say that the company's policies, products, platforms, apps, and algorithms are contributing to the toxicity of racism in the country that Facebook was given birth to, leave aside the rest of us, right? 
So, you know, you have these historically unprecedented movements and movements that go to where it really hurts. There are two places where these companies hurt the most. They don't care about me. They don't care about you. They don't care about New Zealand. They care about their bottom line. They care about shareholder value. And they care about their engineers who are from the global south. Right? When the engineers start moving out, and there's media reports unprecedented this year of individuals who have moved out of these companies because of the frustration they feel and that they want to be on the right side of history. Um, and you have the advertiser boycotts. Right? And these have you know, sh shifted and shaped the discourse these companies have with their shareholders around what they should be doing. Because today, nobody wants to be associated with blood or toxicity or gore or terrorism or right-wing extremism. That's not cool. That's not cool at all. Your current research project aims to study the ways online conversations can be used to promote tolerance and inclusion. Yeah. Can you talk us through a little more about this project? The project is with Twitter, and it looks at six months of tweets before the Christchurch massacre and six months of tweets after the Christchurch massacre. And I'm leading the research as part of the National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies. And the platform and I are very interested in ascertaining what was discussed on Twitter in response to what happened. And if anything, what was discussed before it that may have contributed to, I don't know, frames of violence that uh, created a permissive environment for it. And these are the working assumptions, and the data still has to be fleshed out. But let me say this. One of the reasons that Twitter approached NCPACS and I was a series of op-eds that I ran in New Zealand, um, in the media, uh, online as well as in print, um, because I was able to, quite bizarrely, pivot my doctoral research to not my home, but what happened in Christchurch. And I think as listeners know, uh, the original intent or the target was, uh, you know, just a couple of hundred meters away from where my office is in Tunisian. And so it hit home, you know, uh, I was familiar with the language of the violence, never expected to confront it here, understood the anxieties. And here I was in a position of some privilege where I could access the data that gave me insight to how the country responded. And lo and behold, it was a really interesting response on Twitter. So the data tells us that whichever way you cut it, and I don't want to get too technical because I don't know that some of the listeners may not be on Twitter, but on Twitter there are various ways you can um, put things and thoughts across. And whichever way you cut it in the days and weeks that followed the massacre, global and local outpouring on that platform was what you call pro-social. It was empathetic, sympathetic, um, profoundly hurt and saddened by what had happened, profoundly in support of the government and the prime minister and the victims, profoundly in opposition to the kind of ideology that resulted in it. Um, and it was an incredible global and local outpouring as I said, whichever way you cut it, quite extraordinary, exceptional on this one platform in response to this event. So I'll give you one example. Some of the largest um, uh, tweets uh, were generated in India and in Pakistan, in New Delhi and Islamabad, respectively. So I wondered, what's going on? You know, why would something in Christchurch resonate in those two countries so far away? And it turns out that the TV anchors who broke the news and of their citizens dying uh, in Christchurch when they tweeted something, 
the conversations in Urdu and in Hindi, respectively, in the two countries, Pakistan and India, were in those languages overwhelmingly in support of the victims and the government and this outpouring uh, of support for uh, a country trying to deal with an unprecedented terror attack. So, again, I mean, kind of contested the assumptions that I went in having around social media always playing a toxic, violent, um, uh, incendiary role. And so my interest then was, you know, how could we explain this? Is, this, is it a New Zealand thing? You know, is it uh, a moment in time that generated this? Who knows? So that's kind of the interest that drives the research. And I really hope to find a good story there. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to following your research as it progresses. I am fascinated by it. It's one of the nice things about my research, uh, where so much of what I do with my doctoral research is the worst of humanity and the and our you know and our and our worst selves and the worst we can be. But here was a moment when our better angels um, and the more empathetic framing took precedence. And you know, I, you know, I, I like moments like mm. that. Yeah, no, it's good. It's necessary. It is. It is. <laughs> the last question that I have for you is if there was one thing that you could say to our New Zealand listeners, mm. what message do you have for us? Don't hate or be scared about social media. Um, it's not a tool, um, but it's also this um, platform or series of platforms or however you see it, a way in which um, I think that the country and all of us, I include myself in the wonderful time that I've spent here, need to figure out how to strengthen what we hold and value dear. Um, New Zealand, you know, you know, I think you take for granted that you know the democratic traditions, the institutions, the beauty of the country. You know, it's extraordinary. It's like walking from one picture postcard to another. Um, the value of uh, independent fourth estate, the value of democratic institutions and electoral integrity, and the ways in which laws and regulations are in place to protect all of that. All of that can be strengthened through social media. It's in our hands to grasp the potential. Uh, we can be scared and run away from it. That's not going to help anybody. So grasp the potential of it, but be cognizant of the toxicity of it. And walking that middle path, I think, is what's going to hold the country in good stead. Thank you. Thank you. Wise words, Sanjana. Thank you for spending time with us this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure. We could keep talking for hours, even though you already have been talking. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you. 